welcome to the Justice and War in American History podcast. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Ray Haberski. War has long been an indelible part of America's story, shaping national identity, values, and principles. The experience of war has transformed the lives of each generation. And because of this, it has historically elicited impassioned debates and conflicting perspectives. This podcast aims to explore this history by bringing together a diverse range of voices, veterans, active service members, citizens, and scholars. Through our conversations, we will consider the ways in which war has shaped and reshaped notions of justice. In the process, we will engage with broad themes such as duty, heroism, suffering, loyalty, and patriotism. Our broad framework during this season is to compare and contrast the histories of the Spanish-American, Philippine-American, and Vietnam Wars, wars that had a profound effect on the people of the United States. The National Endowment for the Humanities has generously provided funding for this project, making it possible to have conversations about the effects of war on American veterans, their families, and the generations who bear witness to conflict. Welcome back to the Justice and War in American History podcast. Uh, This is our second episode, and today uh, the topic is the Spanish-American War uh, with our guest, Christopher McKnight Nichols. Yeah, so in this episode, uh, Chris and I will talk about the history, the really bizarre history in some ways, of the American entry into a war against the Spanish in Cuba and the expansion of that war into the Philippines. And in particular, what makes it so weird is that the war was over relatively quickly against the Spanish, but developed into something much broader with uh, the people in the Philippines, which then engendered a very sharp uh, reaction uh, in the domestic political arena. And uh, Chris really goes quite deeply into how that reaction domestically set up a lot of what Americans think about war for the rest of the 20th century and into the 21st century. So let's begin our episode on the Spanish-American War with uh, one of my favorite people to talk to in the historical profession and just in general, uh, Chris Nichols. So Chris is a historian at Ohio State University, but before we go too far into, uh, into the topic and into our discussion, I want Chris to explain what he does, because this is a relatively new position for him, and what, his, uh, what he's doing in, in uh, historical profession in general. I think a lot of people who might be listening to this podcast would like to read what Chris has written um, recently and what will be coming out fairly soon. So, Chris, can you give us a little introduction to yourself and the kind of work you do? Sure, absolutely. That's kind of you to open it up that way. So, I am uh, at the Ohio State University, uh, Ray Habersky. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's trademarked, uh, and I am the dean, uh, Wayne Woodrow Hayes, Woody Hayes Chair in National Security Studies at the Mershon Center for International Security Studies, and a professor of history here. Um, I basically uh, study the history of the role of ideas in U.S. foreign policy and politics. That's kind of my entry point. Uh, where I started is where we're starting today, which is yeah. on kind of debates over U.S. interventionism, isolationism, internationalism in the late 19th century, and how the U.S. wound up as a world power of the sort that we now think of today. So, you know, if you think that the U.S. um, has an important part to play in the world and you're debating with your friends or your colleagues or your enemies or or whoever, uh, those those sorts of questions, in the early 19th century, that would not have been a commonplace kind of conversation. The set of assumptions that we have in the 21st century are entirely different from Mm -hmm. the sort of assumptions in the early republic. When that changes, I argue uh, in my book, Promise and Peril, America, the Dawn of a Global Age, uh, a whole lot of essays, a number of, of other kind of book projects that I've done on uh, ideology and U.S. foreign relations, which you kindly, Ray, have uh, contributed to, book out mm-hmm. last year in 2022 on uh, rethinking American grand strategy. I argue in all those books in different ways, in my own arguments, at least, uh, not those by my colleagues, um, that that something fundamentally and qualitatively different happened in Mm -hmm. roughly the 1890s in U.S. Mm -hmm. debates about the U.S.'s role in the world. And that shaped the U.S.'s role in the world uh, for decades, for the American century to come. Mm 
Um, and so I work on those kinds of topics. One of the things I'm currently researching and writing is a book um, on the transformation of U.S. foreign and domestic policy in the early Cold War. Um, yeah. And what happened to the ideas from before World War II? Where did they go about the limits of U.S. power, for instance, right. yeah. which were not just located on the left, but uh, very often located on the right. And actually, mm -hmm. in the early Cold War, what I've found is that some of the harshest critics of interventionism and Cold War internationalism were coming from the political right, from conservatives mm -hmm. like Robert Taft. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is one of the things that makes your work so interesting, Chris, is that um, there's there's no period since basically the late 19th century that you that your work can't comment on, you know, that uh, questions of intervention or when to stay out or how to get in or how to frame uh, foreign policy in domestic terms doesn't apply. Mm -hmm. um, so actually, one of the things perhaps I'd like to start with is your description of how the debate about American the role that America was was beginning to play in the late 19th century, how domestic politics framed the options mm -hmm. that were available to both policymakers and what the public more generally might have understood. Yeah. So I think, first of all, the way I understand U.S. foreign relations is always an intersection between domestic and foreign. Yeah. So if you look at literature, if you look at popular discussion today, uh, we often bifurcate the two. And that's yeah. a really problematic mm -hmm. issue uh, just to surface that. Right. That's what you're saying. That's what I'm saying. But it's important for us to, to think that way. So the True. intersection of domestic and foreign, um, you find all kinds of ways in which, for instance, think about uh, contemporary budget debates, the debt mm -hmm. ceiling. Right? right. Is that a domestic or foreign policy issue? No, it's both. It's both. Yeah. Absolutely. It's both. Will the U.S. pay it, you know, debts to the world? Will it default as a creditor nation for the first time ever? You know, mm -hmm. um, these are really important. So if you're thinking about the transformation of U.S. foreign relations and domestic politics in the 1880s and 1890s, you know, one of the things you're thinking about is you're coming out of the, the U.S. is coming out of the Civil War. Uh, you know, so you've, you're having an increasingly important large role for a cent centralized federal government, but you still have a very small U.S. military, the biggest branch of government, as uh, a whole lot of folks uh, have, have argued, but it's often news to say my students, was the Postal Service. Yeah. Right. You have roughly 25,000 U.S. troops uh, right before 1898, and they muster and mobilize over 200,000 in the in the conflict. It's 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 a huge transformation. It's a terrible mobilization. Actually, it, it provides lessons for World War One, which is also not a good mobilization. <laughs> and finally, by World War Two, the U.S. has figured out a little bit better how to move a little bit better. Uh, but so, uh, but the real question is about domestic and foreign. I think one really crucial question is about uh, justice, and another mm -hmm. one is about race. Right. So you know, the vital uh, intersection and the rise of a kind of set of Faustian bargains in the U.S. terrible, complicit problems wherein you get segregation and Jim Crow mm -hmm. um, come both out of the North and the South, and lots of scholarship has has introduced this, and you see this also in 1898. So. One of the questions about the war and whether or not the U.S. would annex these new um, territories was about were the people in them uh, racially unfit for self-government? Um, and so Christopher Lash, a famous intellectual historian and others going back, you know, almost 75 years have been writing essays about the racism on both sides of imperialism. Um, and that's important to take uh, in hand. But one of the things that changes a little bit in the late 19th century in terms of race science and, and racialized thinking is that the old abolitionists, the old guard of Republican abolitionists who were like the party of Lincoln in the 1860s, uh, the new guard, the new generation are people like Teddy Roosevelt. And they're imbibing race science, uh, literally as he's going from Texas to Florida uh, to, to muster his troops for the Rough Riders. Um, Teddy, we know Teddy Roosevelt was reading something in a French volume called The Superiority of the Anglo-Saxons. It's very typical of this moment. And I'm not castigating him. In fact, that's exactly the essence of the thinking of the period. So if you think about domestic and foreign, as you have a kind of solidifying color line in the U.S., you see the U.S. expanding abroad and you see a set of questions about you know, the racial fitness of other peoples and groups in Puerto Rico and Cuba and the Philippines and elsewhere. And you see also questions about justice. And so you know, embedded in your point about domestic and foreign and how we think about this is then how do you treat those peoples and groups? What are, what are cutting edge ways to understand what, say, progressive race science might be to implement in those areas as mm -hmm. uh, kind of confounding as that might be for our, our a contemporary ear or listener to think about. So would that mean that it would be more or less humane for the U.S. to govern these places until mm -hmm. they're ready to yep. be uh, civilized? That's one argument you see uh, uh, in the groups of, of large policy advocates who want the U.S. to take these territories and teach 
quote, their little brown brothers to become better Democrats. Mm-hmm. And then you see on the other side, similarly, anti-imperialists who argue that the, these peoples and groups are racially inferior and therefore should mm-hmm. not be incorporated into the U.S., should not be ruled by the U.S. In fact, you see this you know, in, in the labor left. One of the things I say in, in Promise and Peril, and I've, I've cited numerous times, and lots of scholars have too, is these, mm-hmm. for instance, Samuel Gomper is one of the champions of, of, of labor organizing the U.S., uh, argued against any imperial acquisitions and bringing anyone new and in, uh, into the into the nation state, including across the borders, the immediate borders of the U.S., was an anti-immigrationist a zealot uh, because he believed in increasing wages and bargaining right. power for right. you know American-born, Native American-born, yeah. meaning Anglo-Saxon or, or coded white in that period, which would look a little different later folks. Um, so, you know, <laughs> that, that, those are several really important intersections of what's changing in that era and how people are thinking, and also how that really adds complexity to how we might map on contemporary politics or spectrum of left-right yeah. um, to the past. So we, we often take a, a sort of a, a look back at, at things like the Spanish-American War and almost see them as inevitable, right? That they're, they're signposts that become um, uh, places where we import a lot of meaning uh, that we then take and use and, and interpret uh, to interpret other things that, that follow. Was there anything inevitable about the Spanish-American War for the United States? And was this something that um, policymakers or, or sort of domestic thought leaders would have imagined happening when it did? Or was it something that was, uh, they, they sort of stumbled upon it and took advantage, full advantage of it as best they could? So that's a great question. There, there are a lot of ways to unpack that. You know, one of the things that we see in military history and diplomatic history is often um, a way that we teach and think about these things as a path to war. And so we can line up historical events um, mm-hmm. to make a case that it looks like there's a path to war. Now, is that inevitable or are each of those sort of more contingent, right? Right. right. Could they have turned out differently? It takes Something a lot probably to... would have happened in some place. Yes. Okay. Would it have happened earlier? Would it have happened right. later? So if you look right. at the very early scholarship coming out of the Spanish-American War, including by, say, um, uh, Republican Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, who writes a brief history of it in 1899. Mm-hmm. Now, many of those writing just in the very immediate wake said uh, not that it was inevitable in 1898, but what was surprising to them was that it took so long for the U.S. to wind up yeah. uh, knocking the Spanish out of the out of the Caribbean uh, and taking Cuba and Puerto Rico. Um, and if you look at the longer history of U.S. foreign relations with Cuba, for instance, off and on as a flashpoint, the U.S. tried to buy Cuba from Spain. Yeah. I mean, virtually every decade uh, <laughs> from the 1820s onward and for very different reasons. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to think about that, too. In some cases, it to advance slave interest in the slave power and other in other moments, it's, it's quite the opposite. And there's a, a battle back and forth yeah. in terms of U.S. foreign policy on those things. So, you know, but I think that another way to think about it is there's also been a series of revolutions and we need to decenter the U.S. for a second in Cuba and in the Philippines. Right. So, you know, uh, there had been ongoing revolutions in Cuba against the really gross mistreatment that the Spanish leadership and Spanish military were were um, per- perpetuating there, uh, including in the 18 mid 1890s and 1895. There's this big Cuba Libre moment. This is the big one that pushes <laughs> them, what we see to uh, coming really from Eastern Cuba, and what happens is the Cuban um, the Cuban army army is this one of the most in the eighteen nineties is one of the most integrated in in world history. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something like sixty percent black, forty percent of the officers are are, are are black or mulatto, as would have been defined in that period. Right. Right. Um, and 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 it, so it's a it's a it's a huge movement, but uh, they're a ragtag bunch uh, that literally in rags, as, as all of the reports uh, indicate, um, un- underfunded, underarmed, underfed. Um, uh, so when American politicians look in in 1895 at this, uh, you can look at the congressional record and other examples of this. They they see um, they they're they see that this is not an inconsequential disturbance. It's something okay. that is a culmination okay. of all these different decades of the U.S. Right. looking to Cuba to buy it or to push the Spanish out, different kinds of diplomacy. And so in this moment, it's called the Cuban problem, right? And there needs to be an American solution. And so <laughs> some of the other little moments, right? That's 1896 yeah. is the next year when William McKinley, the Republican, is elected. 
you're starting to see a push in a group of, of Republicans, especially this younger guard, yeah. not the old abolitionists, abolitionists, but this new guard. They're thinking about what they then come to describe as the large policy of expansionism. They, they only talk about that in their own letters to each other. We, <laughs> we import that back. Uh, but they really want to expand. They're thinking about military interventions. They're mostly thinking about the U.S. as a rising power in the way that IR people, political scientists now talk about exactly. it, power, right? right? So one of the things you find after 1898 is American policymakers saying, hey, the U.S. is now one of the seven big powers in the world, mm-hmm. having defeated the Spanish. Um, so part of that trajectory <laughs> then is U.S. rising power, right? Could right. it have happened in the 1870s or 1880s? Perhaps. You know, could it happen in the early 1900s? Perhaps. Right, right. right. So, it, you know, th- this question of inevitability gets to how we line up those contingent moments. Yep. It's 1895 that you have this big Cuba Libre moment. The, the, their army is getting more traction. You know, it takes you know, 18 months as the revolt grows rapidly, right? Bands of insurgents coalesce. They, they come to a force of something like 50,000. So there's only maybe 200,000 Spanish forces um, in Cuba. Suddenly, you know, that, that's, a, that's a sizable percentage there. You get the U.S. in and suddenly it changes, um, it changes the dynamics of what's going on on the ground. Do we need to worry about how the United States enters into that particular uh, revolution. I mean, th- does it matter yeah. that it's set up in a sort of um, sort of a foggy event, or does it do, do we do we focus on that to the deficit of actually not looking at all the things that were, were happening before it that we're getting you know the country lined up to go some to go into it somehow some mm-hmm. in some way. I mean, does it matter that the main is attacked yeah. in some yeah. capacity? Right? Do we even have to talk about that? I think we do. I mean, I think we, I'm glad we started where we did, right? So there's a series of events. It's longstanding right. revolutions, right? you know? Yes. And then also we need to talk about that foggy moment. I mean, I often, uh, I, starting when I first started lecturing about US, US foreign policy, I would, I would yeah. uh, have an aside that now has become a constant aside, which I'm now sharing with you, which is the US very often the Casus Belli uh, is something related to the ocean, the sea, and vessels. Yep. Right? Vietnam. Vietnam, yep. right? the, yeah. the Gulf of Tonkin Revolution yeah. in 1964, Vietnam, you know, it is often argued, although, you know, uh, not exactly accurate that the Lusitania is right. the genesis moment for World War One, right? Yeah. The Maine in 1898. Um, and we, you know, we could, we could keep thinking about, about yeah. obviously Pearl Harbor. Right? Pearl Harbor. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, major conflicts, modern conflicts have this uh and, and that's because, in part, vessels fly a flag of a nation. Yep. Um, they're vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are kind of assertions that large powers can make about access to, to the sea and to the ocean and to mm-hmm. free trade. Um, that also <laughs> fits with the ways that, that Americans tend to think about how mm-hmm. they should get to operate in the world. Um, but most importantly, it allows a linguistic turn where war is forced on the U.S. Okay, is, there you go. <laughs> for, the, right. for the defense of the Union, which has mm-hmm. been attacked at sea, the U.S. Yeah. must go on the offensive, right? And that's almost always the way that war messages, uh, war addresses by presidents uh, and Congress, in fact, uh, are articulated in 1898 and thereafter. So it does matter. You know, it also matters that, you know, the main is sunk um, and there's immediate speculation in the so-called yellow press that it was the Spanish. Uh, you know, if you look at the diary entries of, of the major U.S. politicians like Henry Cabot Lodge or uh, or, or Teddy Roosevelt, they're pretty sure it wasn't the Spanish putting a mine in, <laughs> on the ship, but th- they like the idea that, that the press is saying that they don't know. So they're, they're, they're comfortable say, you know, using this fog of war kind of propagandistic element mm-hmm. right there, which you see in the other, other moments as well. Um, you know, the, the U S is allowed by the Spanish to, to send in divers. There's an arbitration about that. It's much more complicated. It wasn't the, just the main, you know, if it had been, if it had been just the main, the arbitration process in international law would have gone forward and, you know, there would have been some indemnity paid by the Spanish. No, no, but no, no. part of it is the, but where does that go? You know, like yeah. to Pearl Harbor, um, you know, really catastrophic event that catalyzes American public opinion. Right. The main right. isn't quite that, but it's closer to that. When you look at the press, you look at how people are thinking, because remember, the main suddenly becomes this huge thing. I mean, it's different than the Gulf of Tonkin, which seems to be much more of an internal uh, yes. moment for the for the, the government. And, and Johnson's administration builds a policy that had already been deeply uh, sort of in, embedded mm-hmm. or deeply in, invested in Vietnam into something new. But this, right. this really, this, it seems like a, a spark of the kind that Pearl Harbor sort of is. Uh, exactly. and, and, it, and it does allow a certain kind, as you said, a certain kind of language to develop around whatever is going to follow, right? So mm-hmm. what is the language 
that does begin to coalesce? What is it? What what comes to dominate uh, the the conversation after the main? So uh, there's a, there's a couple things. So so one thing that's going on in that moment is that there's a there's a, a leaked letter to the yellow press uh, from the uh, ambassador to the Spanish ambassador to the U.S. Enrique de Puigdemont. Um, and it says that that McKinley is a bitter to the crowd. He's this, you know, tool basically of uh, of the Republicans and, and the establishment, and he's not really strong. Um, and these are the sorts of things that that today would seem like innocuous or quaint in, in no current kidding. politics, where we wow, the kinds of things people say in American politics now about each other is pretty terrible. But in this moment, um, that was seen as a real affront to the U.S. Mm-hmm. by the Spanish, by the official, you know, um, ambassador, and so. Uh, that's leaked uh, just within a week of of the of the main sinking. Uh, there are a couple of other of these events, but but the main rhetoric ar- around this moment, one of the things I think is makes it stand out as a modern kind of conflict for the U.S. is that um, the historiography has suggested that actually the sensationalized journalism um, isn't as important as a causal element here um, right. as as people used right. to say. Or if Absolutely. You, if, yeah, if listeners have picked up a textbook that's you know a little bit outdated, that's often the account, right? It's, it's often it, 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 exactly it's a bold it's a bolded uh, yeah. intertitle, right? Yes, exactly. It's yeah, that's bold. You know, the the the, the, the press makes the war, and and there's right. undoubtedly that's part of it, right? Shaping sure. the coverage and shaping, as you noted, right? The what are the questions? What's the language? But I would argue that the one of the most important things is you see a, a bunch of senators and members of Congress go to Cuba on the ground and they look at the conditions and they see how terribly. Cubans are being treated, mm-hmm. um, and they see how uh, how harsh uh, Valeriano uh, Weiler, known as the yeah. butcher, the general the Spanish butcher in charge of this reconcentrado policy, where they're basically pushing together so the civilian population and, and essentially depriving them um, so that they wouldn't become uh, part of the of the revolutionary group. Yeah. Um, and, and so the, the, these harsh, terrible conditions then um, amplified by the press, but uh, you can see these accounts in the congressional record and elsewhere, elsewhere really do seem to be motivating American politicians in the language that they use about why the U.S. has to be involved now. So the why now question, right? If it could have been the 1870s or the 1840s or, you know, in the future, the say 1920s, why this moment? And they go right. there and they look on the ground and they do these, the, you know, we can see this in the primary sources, they, they, they look at what's going on and they say things, you know, a Senator Redfield Proctor uh, condemned the condemned the reconcentrado policy. I actually have one of his documents here, um, uh, you know, calling it, uh, noting that there's no domestic animals and no crops on the fields. You know, the purpose of them is to keep them, uh, all the insurgents out, uh, it, and, and noting uh, how just horrific these policies were, um, he said he couldn't really believe that this was the standard operating policy and principle of the Spanish in Cuba. Uh, and so you get these these folks coming back, these senators and, and congressmen coming back, and that's really part of lighting that spark. Right. Uh, it's not the main is a tripwire, you might call right. it. Right. Um, but uh, the conditions are set already in the political discourse. So that allows uh, it allows Congress to to fully back what McKinley is asking for, right? Yeah. Which is is a formal declaration of war. Is that correct? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, just to roughly review for those who aren't familiar with this, you get this the Hearst uh, publishing the uh, Dupuy de mm-hmm. a letter that insults McKinley in February of 1898. The main had been sent to Cuba earlier than that. The main is sunk in February February 9th, 1898, uh, is when the Hearst publishes that. The main is sunk on February 15th, 1898. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt starts issuing some orders as Assistant uh, Secretary of the Navy on February 25th about planning for, for war <laughs> planning. Um, uh, April 11th uh, is when McKinley approves war with Spain. And then you get, uh, following that, uh, things like the Teller Amendment, uh, a, a series of, of events and replies about um, whether or not the U.S. would uh, would formally um, uh, try to colonize Spain or keep it as a territory or not, which is what these amendments were about, these debates were about, which is a huge issue in the American Congress. And it's April right. 24th, 1898, that Spain declares war on the U.S. Um, so you have this process. And, and a, uh, April 25th is the day that the U.S. declares war on Spain. But McKinley is approving war with Spain on April 11th. So you see a whole so, series of events yeah. from February uh, through the end of April uh, to get the U.S. into the war. And, all, and not long afterward, eight, May 1st, 1898, is the famous Battle of Manila Bay uh, when Commodore Dewey defeats the Spanish fleet, 
suffers zero combat casualties, (laughs) uh, sinks the entire fleet. And you have the German and French fleets and and others observing from the periphery and saying, oh, my God, we had no idea. (laughs) Now, Chris, uh, leaping how many thousands of miles from Cuba to the Philippines, I understand that the United States is at war with Spain. But what was the connection? I mean, well, the obvious connection is the Spanish control of the Philippines. Uh, right. The, but, why, but, the, what, but what Congress had been looking at was nothing to do with the Philippines. Exactly right. Yes. Okay. So, well, there was naval war planning that went back to at least uh, 1896 that I've right. related right. to this. Uh, and so there were, there were standing orders. If the U.S. goes to war with Spain, <laughs> the, the U.S. Pacific uh, squadron will attack Manila Bay. Uh, yeah. that's, there's, a, there's a cult of Teddy Roosevelt that argues, as I just alluded, that, that uh, when he was issuing these orders to Commodore um, Dewey, that, that, uh, that he was the brilliant genius behind this, this plan. But of course, it was the standing plan. Uh, Roosevelt took his credit, nonetheless. Um, What was interesting about that, what's important about that, if you're thinking about U.S. war making and what's going on, is that the revolution in the Philippines had been ongoing uh, for over a year and had been wildly successful. And basically the only point uh, in the Philippines that was still held by the Spanish was the city of Manila. And on May 1st, the U.S. defeats the Spanish fleet outside of the city of Manila, and very rapidly thereafter, it looks to Philippine insurgents, Philippine revolutionaries, right. Philippine Democrats, who are, who are modeling their prospective government and their declaration of independence <laughs> on the U.S. and the U.S. Constitution, like the U.S. is going to be a savior. Uh, yeah. The U.S. is going to come in, help them establish control, and then uh, depart. And in fact, Congress even debates giving them independence briefly. Um, and then the U.S. troops famously turned their guns uh, on the on the Philippine revolutionaries. Um, so what's also worth noting here is that in Cuba and in the Philippines, the revolutionaries had been at it for a while, had begun yeah. to be successful, and the U.S. Right. steps in. And in some ways, if you think about the broader dimensions of you know history as told by the victors, the U.S. Yeah. winds up taking all this credit, right? Well, it, it takes credit in sort of the immediate. Um aftermath of, of defeating Spain. Like it was, it was the last sort of push uh, uh, against the Spanish to, they, they, would, they would never come back, right? The understanding that Spain has no way of reclaiming uh, its power in either place. But I think there's been a pretty robust debate recently, right? Fairly recently. Mm-hmm. The differences between what happens in Cuba and what happens in the Philippines. Yes. And, and, and then there's a debate within uh, what happens in the Philippines itself, that, mm-hmm. that the two things, first of all, are different from each other. I mean, they go differently. They, they sort of start differently. But that the way the United States begins in the Philippines is not how it ends up in the Philippines. So I'm, I'm wondering, so in, if you could speak briefly to how things conclude in Cuba mm-hmm. and then shift to what becomes the sort of um, unfortunate uh, early echo <laughs> of what we know yeah. of American fighting insurgencies <laughs> for the rest of basically its history in the Philippines. Right. So the, the, the overview of, of the Cuba story is to, a couple of things I'd love to mention just briefly. So one, uh, the U.S. war in, in Cuba and in, in Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. aided uh, by uh, you know, these, these revolutionaries on the ground, um, uh, right. is, is, is important and significant and ends in roughly a month. Uh, and yeah. total U.S. casualties <laughs> are, are around 400. Um, uh, and total U.S. casualties in the Philippines, in the yeah. Philippine, uh, what used to be called the Philippine Insurrection, Rebellion, yeah. War, uh, that lasts through um, July 1902, uh, but continues sporadically up until 1910. Total U.S. casualties are 4,000, Yeah, right? Uh, so tenfold more. Uh, total Philippine casualties in that conflict are 20,000 or so. Total, yeah. That's combatants. Combat. Filipinos... Yeah. There are conservative estimates range from fifty to two hundred thousand dying of famine, um, as well as 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 war dislocation and refugees status and all kinds of things. That's incredible. Yeah, so it's devastating in the Philippines. Um, If you broaden out your view too, for the Spanish, they refer to this war as the El Desastre. um, That that the the disaster that it signaled for the end of their empire. Yeah. was catastrophic um, that it's often described you can you can see this in some of the literature of the turn of the 20th century in Spanish literature these arguments that that the the uh, the empire had become ruin and desolation mm-hmm. and this was sort of this um, signature moment when it showed that the Spanish uh, Navy and military had been hollowed out 
um, such that they really couldn't fight. They really weren't a major power anymore. They had no more colonies. They didn't deserve to be a major power. It's a real reckoning point in Spanish history. Some people argue that it's the seeds of the yeah. revolution, the civil war to come. That Absolutely. It, right. It's an argument yeah. for you know, getting rid of monarchy, moving towards fascism. There's a variety of different claims here that the state has given up. Um, yeah. Another really interesting and important sort of symbolic moment is that at the end of uh, the conflict in Cuba, the U.S. Army, because as I mentioned, their Cuban allies were uh, largely a ragtag mm -hmm. group that was very multiracial that they actively disdained. They did not allow those folks into um, the into Santiago and into where they were uh, signing the formal armistice to end the conflict. And so though m most of the, the Spanish troops were, were all over the island and they actually surrendered to the Cuban revolutionaries, in the most important sort of symbolic moment, the U.S. does the signing. And as we know in the history of war, that, that's a really significant element. Yeah, they don't have a right. seat at the table. And you can argue, you can go back, you can go to the more recent past, Fidel yeah. Castro and other Cuban revolutionaries look back to this moment and said, mm -hmm. you know, you stole our thunder. Yeah. Uh, and largely you stole our thunder because of racism. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's that's a big piece here as well. And <laughs> thinking about that, what's going on there. Now, what's interesting in the Philippines, as a partial contrast, and there's a number of ways that scholars talk about this. So I'll, I'll backhand it, but there's I think there's more depth here if we want to dive into it. And mm -hmm. I encourage people to think about this. So the American uh, governance strategy there is is one called benevolent assimilation, basically, mm. uh, from McKinley and then Governor Taft, who becomes William Howard Taft president. Um, and uh, they try to pull in the old Spanish uh, kind of elites and a kind of more more white or mestizo group uh, as the elites, including Aguinaldo, who had been who is the Cuban revolutionary who the U.S. winds up fighting, Emilio Aguinaldo, who arrived back, I believe it's uh, in, 18, in in 1897 on a U.S. ship uh, to to be part of the then roiling up revolution in the Philippines. He naively thought the U.S. would support him, and and was was. Uh, <laughs> Very disappointed when the yes. U.S. troops turned their guns on on, the, on those revolutionaries, yeah. but but the U.S. tries to co-opt the kind of elites there um, as a governance strategy, and it's something similar actually happens in Spain uh, with regard to the Spanish elites uh, in in Cuba. Um, yeah. But uh, but because so many of of that similar group are revolutionaries in the Philippines, um, who then the U.S. is fighting, they have a hard time from 1898 the U.S. for 1898 to 1902 to try to bring those elites in. So you get get a moment of benevolent assimilation that's kind of asserted from the top down yeah. as the U.S. is trying to figure out what it looks like to be a colonial power, not like not you know a, a better one uh, than the British, as as is a is a corrupt a corrupt par paraphrase of the thinking of that. No, right. I mean, so why do they turn? Why does what does the United States decide to turn its guns against the people who had by themselves basically almost completely toppled the Spanish in the Philippines? What was the uh, the key to that? You know, I mean, on, on one level, it, it's it, you know, it's absolutely obvious the U.S. Um, ha well, strategically, uh, a goal for the U.S. has been uh, the deep water harbor in Manila uh, <laughs> and, and, and having access to it and controlling it. Um, Such a cool prize, you can't let it go. Yeah. Yes, yeah, um, and as a you know, as a stepping off point to yeah. trade, trade in China. Right. Um, depending on where you stand in different kinds yeah. of debates about uh, how much economics is a driver or national security is a driver here, you you could have you can make different kinds of arguments because there's a lot of evidence in this moment. Yeah. It's unclear, yeah. you know, that there's a religious component uh, that's yeah. often infused back. The U.S. wants to. Uh, Christianize these, you know, largely but not exclusively Catholic populations. Catholic. <laughs> uh, so that there's there's uh, then there's some problems with with the Catholic churches in the U.S. that that don't quite know how to what to do with this because they're for a kind of expansion of Western civilization, and now they're now they're caught in a in a difficult place. Um, so there's a number of different motivations. the The immediate turnaround there um, is the U U.S. thinkers, uh, the McKinley administration, the Republicans. Um, believing that that the Filipinos cannot govern themselves, and they're not ready to hand over governance right. to revolutionaries. Right? But so, it, is, it, it is it is fascinating you know, to, to think about it in those terms that the United States can make a decision about who is able to govern, 
<laughs> and, and whether or not it is up to them to figure out when they're able to govern from 4,000, 5,000 miles away. <laughs> yeah. Politicians who um, didn't know where it was on the map, were, were like, <laughs> right. absolutely didn't. Like McKinley even famously says he doesn't yeah. know he needs to go look at the map. So, yes. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's Paul Bremer, Bremer, <laughs> Bremer, again, ringing in my ears about you know, what, what, what the Iraqis are going to be able to do <laughs> for themselves. Right. And uh, I mean, in the United States does so much damage in Iraq that it ends up killing probably as many people as Hussein did in his last eight years of reign or whatever, you know? Yeah. Anyway, in any case. Um, but, but I think you're hitting on something really, really important. So, and yeah. it's worth just underscoring U S policymakers thinking they get to decide who runs different countries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, a through line from 1898 onwards. Right. Um, the U.S. was not as uh, invested in the determinations of that earlier. Actually, there were kind of arguments in the 19th century about respecting the sovereignty of other countries, including right. undergoing their own civil wars. Like in the hemisphere, right. for instance, the U.S. had a stake in hemispheric revolutions, obviously. Um, <laughs> had one? Yet, yeah, <laughs> right. But thought that, hey, we wouldn't have won others meddling in ours. And that was the kind of uh, golden rule kind of principle. Um, the shift in the 20th century is fascinating starting in 1898. But the other element that's really important to underscore too, is that when the US is, US policymakers uh, are deciding the, these kinds of issues, it galvanizes opposition. So what well, you see in 1898 yeah, exactly. is that lots of Americans suddenly realize that the US shouldn't be intervening and in deciding who rules mm-hmm. other peoples, especially if the answer to that question is the US. Yep. So, so, yeah. so on this point, right? So I, again, I think mm-hmm. your, your book, um, uh, has really done for me it, it's it's the it's my go-to volume when i need to try to describe to students um their tradition not not, not so much of pacifism but of anti-war mm-hmm. or anti-imperialism or anti-interventionism or or sort of like anti-stupid thinking right what what obama mm-hmm. attempted to put into place you know during his his eight years so would you say that the the, the people that you look at the reason why they begin to discuss together their opposition to the Spanish American or the, the war really in the Philippines primarily mm-hmm. is because they feel the United States has made it a, a fundamental, an intellectual shift that is dangerous for the world, for the country, for the traditions that, that they actually believe in, in the United States. What is it that they're coalescing around? Yeah. So they're, uh, they're coalescing around. So this is the Rise of the American Anti-Imperialist League, um, one of the two biggest foreign policy lobby groups in U.S. political history and and the most heterogeneous in U.S. political history. So this is a group that involves Andrew Carnegie. It involves Mark Twain, W.E.B. Du Bois, Jane Addams. So you're talking, you know, uh, some of the uh, uh, former presidents, uh, sitting members of Congress, um, thinkers, writers, et cetera. You you know, some of the some of the greatest thinkers in, in U.S intellectual life, politicians, writers, you know, uh, coming from the across the political spectrum. Uh, and what galvanizes them first is uh, well, they, they, they move really rapidly after 1898, but um, not, not quickly enough for uh, mm-hmm. mounting any opposition to the annexations, which happened at the very end of 1898, Treaty of Paris into 1899. So that's the U.S. acquiring, you know, Puerto Rico, um, the uh, access to Cuba, Guam, um, yeah. the Philippines, uh, and, you know, with some pledges for independence and other kinds of caveats mm-hmm. there. But 1899, moving onward, the election of 1900 pivots on some of these questions. In fact, you know, what kind of annexation should this be? Should the U.S. be a colonial power? And what these anti-imperialists, what these anti-interventionists are generally arguing is that the U.S. should not, quote, rule alien peoples against their will. So whatever it is that the U.S. is doing in controlling territory, if the people there don't want the U.S. doing it, it shouldn't do it. And they, they felt they had a sense of what the people wanted. How? So, you know, in, in terms of the Philippines, Aguinaldo and the revolutionaries had done a very good job of um, getting out their message. Yeah. You know, in, in 1900, it's one of the few times that a, uh, a revolutionary leader currently engaged in a, in, a, in a conflict, in a revolution against the U.S., Emilio Aguinaldo is able to endorse William Jennings Bryan um, <laughs> for the presidency uh, and is hopeful yeah. that he would be able to secure a more rapid armistice, you know, yeah. um, it, so that that's 
you know, the, he's, their message is getting out. Um, yeah. And Americans are going to and from the Philippines. Um, <clears throat> lots of letters are coming back from soldiers, for instance. Yeah. You know, one of the yeah. examples here, this is embedded in a lot of my comments, but I'll just surface it so people can really understand. Mm-hmm. You know, the, uh, the, the kinds of things that are happening there, U.S. troops in the Philippines use the N-word repeatedly. Uh, against Filipinos, uh, they they develop the the term "gugu," which becomes the word, g- which yep. get, gets involved in how uh, Americans deride v- the Vietnamese. Uh, yep. the, the racism is palpable uh, in this moment, and particularly because there's large numbers of African Americans mustered mm-hmm. to fight. You've got Buffalo soldiers, uh, yep. but you've also got these groups that are known as immune troops. There was this thinking in the era that 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 um, people of color had more immunity to tropical diseases, and so yep. there were more black troops in the Philippines than you would expect. Uh, And these troops are being propagandized by the revolutionaries. They're saying, look how you're being treated. You know, again, it's a segregated army. They're being paid less, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's, you know, they see their fellow you know, men in arms um, espousing all this racist rhetoric, which, you know, in the U.S., very much they're familiar with, right? Yeah. Uh, the worst elements of that. So, you know, that that kind of stuff is coming back too. There are a few high profile moments that, that kind of mirror what is to come in Vietnam right. of right. U.S. soldiers turning sides yep. and joining the revolutionaries. Yep. Um, and, and so in the Anti-Imperialist League, they, they publicize this relentlessly. So they've got these hmm. tracks, these broadsides, they, they print lots of them, uh, mostly emanating from Boston, Massachusetts, but they're, they're all over the place in the U.S., um, so there is a lot of knowledge about uh, what's going on there. As the war moves on, we haven't talked about the atrocities. American soldiers say that they yep. learned the so-called water cure, right, uh, from, uh, from that is waterboarding from yes. uh, Filipinos to get information. And they, they, it's, you can actually see photos in U.S. field army manuals of American troops learning how to waterboard. Um, though it wasn't officially sanctioned, uh, there were st- strategies of widespread uh, recrimination and um, uh, uh, sort of reprisal techniques against, uh, uh, against small villages, including killing everyone in them, all kinds of things that, again, mirror the sorts of atrocities that we see in Vietnam. So there's a lot that's going wrong in this conflict. And the more that's publicized, the more you see people like Mark Twain writing eviscerating kinds of, of, of essays uh, about, you know, he's this famous essay to the American sitting in darkness, to, to the person sitting in darkness, uh, illuminating the kinds of ways in which um, U.S. ideals don't match the reality, that the <laughs> U.S. is falling flat, and not, not just falling flat, that in fact, he says something like, uh, you know, the U.S., uh, the stars and stripes should be, should be painted over black, and it should be a skull and crossbones. You know, the U.S. is out there murdering for these yeah. ideals, for what? And, you know, the other thing that I emphasize in the book that's worth noting, arguably the most famous, most important U.S. philosopher, William James, right. finds his political voice in 1898 and 1899. Until then, he really didn't do politics. He did mm-hmm. philosophy and psychology and religion. And now he does. And why? Because he sees the U.S. doing these horrible things abroad uh, in the name of civilization and, and these seemingly noble kinds of ideas. And in fact, they're falling flat on and, mm-hmm. and, and doing these, these horrible, terrible actions um, that don't accord with American ideals. Or as he would say, you know, you can measure uh, an idea by its cash value, right? Uh, or mm-hmm. pragmatism, you know, That's right. and these, uh, these ideas, they're, they're cashing out terribly, right? Patriotism is turning into oppression and insurrection, put, putting down insurrections through further atrocities for what? Right. Um, So uh, all of which is to say they're rallying around this, not ruling people against their will. But um, there are a number of different permutations. There's some economic arguments that come out of this moment. You know, what will benefit the U.S. best? So one of the things I love to emphasize about this in my teaching and in in Promise and Peril and some other some other articles and arguments that I make is that there's a great political cartoon in 1898. I encourage listeners to to (laughs) look at it. Uh, civilization begins at home. It's easy to Google. And it's an image of William McKinley looking at this map avariciously. You know, the U.S. is going to acquire the Philippines. And then behind him, you can see what domestic society looks like, getting back to your earlier point. And it's lynching and it's poverty. And he's turned his back on that. The Republican Party turned his back on that. Uh, And in the name of civilization abroad, you know, barbarism is dominating at home. Now, I mean, if, if, uh, if listeners have not already started to go to Amazon to get promise and peril because it basically <laughs> is, is the foundation for everything that we talk about in war from, from uh, the, you know, the early 20th century to today, <laughs> you know, th- this, this podcast should, should confirm that. 
All right. So, Chris, I do want because we're, we're getting uh, a little bit short on time. And I actually wanted to um, ask you some stuff about the present war uh, between Russia and Ukraine, mm-hmm. in part because I think one of the things that historians like you do, and, and particularly in your new position at the Ohio State, is, is to do the sort of contextualizing yeah. that, is, that historians are really good at when it comes to contemporary issues, which can seem either in, hopelessly confusing or so completely sort of um, uh, pedantic, you know, that it, it's, it's clear that there's a lesson to be learned. And if you don't learn it, you're a dumbass or something like that. But in this case, the United States is uh, fairly deeply invested in sending material and, and, and aid in whatever form to the Ukrainians. But, it, it, but they seem the country and its allies in Europe seem to be incredibly invested mm-hmm. in doing something to Russia. I'm not even quite clear what that is other than to say that Russia cannot simply invade Ukraine mm-hmm. and get away with it. But how would you use the sort of stuff that you've been writing on recently, especially with grand strategy, mm-hmm. to think in terms of what what is it that but the United States wants to get out of its involvement with Ukraine? Because I, I think we have a fairly clear idea what Russia and Ukraine want, mm-hmm. but what is it that the United States wants? Yeah. So let's try to connect where we were in the Spanish-American War to that question. So yeah. you know, one way of thinking about what's hap- why this is a modern conflict in 1898, an intervention, <laughs> and how it kind yeah. of changes the U.S. mindset yeah. is uh, in terms of national security is about spheres of influence. Yeah. So the U.S. is now putting its money where its mouth is, you might say, in mm-hmm. waging a war in the Caribbean to push yeah. out a colonial power who it says is oppressing people on the ground right. Uh, right. against their will. And in various ways, right, you know, Cuba gets a semi-independent government and the U.S. Mm-hmm. has the right in their constitution to intervene, you know, inglorious, <laughs> colonial, racist, all kinds of problems. But, you know, you can see the rationale there. The U.S. has a sphere of influence, a duty, you know, a right to protect, you might say, in a kind of modern U.N. Right. human rights kind of sensibility, you know, uh, and, and, and operationalizes that in conflict. Um, and then instantiates that in, in the peace treaties and in, in U.S. law uh, to follow. You know, so thinking forward, then, how does that logic play out as the U.S. gains more power in the world system? Yeah. What are other ways of aiding a conflict or aiding belligerents short of war becomes a yeah. huge question in the 20th century. You know, the U.S. is the U.S. a de facto combatant in World War One because it's sending so much more aid and so much more finances um, to, to Britain and France uh, yeah. and, and uh, acquiescing uh, to the blockade by the British um, by the British Navy. You know, that's William Jennings Bryan's argument um, in, in 1914, 1915, and he resigns as Secretary of State because right. he says the U.S. is not actually a neutral in that not, It's not neutral, right. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, as you think through these moments, then what is this moment? The U.S. is obviously not neutral against Russia, right? But the U.S. is unwilling and unable uh, to declare war. NATO has mm-hmm. not declared war or, or, right. or because it, it, is, it is not uh, invoking any articles because right. Ukraine is not a signatory and is not part of the uh, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, mm-hmm. but um, it is sending all kinds of aid, NATO, the U.S. Uh, member nations, EU, sending all kinds of support. So, you know, age short of war is happening. There are American yeah. trainers on the ground, right? Yeah. So that's another piece. They're, they're often yeah. a tripwire to conflict. If you think through other moments, the more trainers and the more uh, mechanics, the more uh, other kinds of f- forces you have on the ground, you need to protect them, which means then you need more combat troops. Mm-hmm. This happens with embassies too. You can think about this yep. in other places. They become vulnerability spots. Uh, in the 1990s, there's bombings, you know, in a number of places uh, by Al-Qaeda, um, which are precursors to, you know, what happens... You know, including uh, one in the, the the Gulf, right? Yes, the, the coal. Yeah, yep. The U.S. is coal. So you have U.S. ships. You got U.S. embassies. You got Again, it's, yeah. so you know thinking through aid and large presence can then uh, trigger larger kinds of conflict through vulnerability. That's something the the Biden administration is trying to figure out. You know, to, to triangulate how vulnerable should the U.S. be in that sense. Um, that it might then get embroiled in something further. So what does the U.S. want out of this kind of thing? Well, one level, which is obvious here, I think, is ideological, which also tracks with what we're talking about. The U.S. as you know, making a case for free peoples, for democracy, right, or for Mm -hmm. freedom uh, and against oppression. So if you go back to the kind of rationales for getting involved in Cuba or getting involved in the Philippines, it was to get rid of these Spanish oppressors uh, who had no right and and were doing things against the will of the people on the ground. Absolutely, that same kind of logic 
like maps on here. And that's what the Biden administration has been projecting. Absolutely. In a very Reagan-esque or even, you know, Eisenhower or Truman-esque kind of way saying yeah. the U.S. is, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, the Truman Doctrine in 1947 to is to um, support free peoples. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's a first U.S. pledge after World War II to do that kind of thing, basically fighting communist aggression. Um and it's the same kind of language we hear against Russia today from the Biden administration. Yeah. So, you know, on that level, it's about depicting this as a conflict between democracy and autocracy or authoritarianism yeah. or dictatorship, um, which, you know, can be an issue, of course. <laughs> Here we are talking about the U.S.'s role in the hemisphere, where the U.S. notably backed lots of terrible dictators uh, yeah. throughout Central and South America um, in the 20th century, nominally as a way of creating a bulwark against communism, but often these dictators were, you know, as bad as any option on the table of a communist or of a communist leader. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, so there's that piece, but I think a broader question here is um, for the 21st century and national security questions and sphere of influence is, you know, what nations will get to impact mm-hmm. the shape of the international system in the future? Right. Are there groups or nation states or configurations of the two that can stop aggressor nations from trampling on the sovereignty of smaller powers. This is a classic international relations question mm-hmm. yeah. um, that generally in IR theory revolves around well, who's the hegemonic power or what are the major organizations and institutions and structures to stop that. But if you look at this current conflict, hmm. absent the US, how would Ukraine be doing? Absent you know, NATO and European allies, how would Ukraine be doing? Now, They'd be suing for peace. Yeah. First of all, they did great defending right away, right? They right. surprised ev- virtually every observer around the world to some extent in their They protected Kiev and yeah. Kharkov. Yeah. Yep. But, you know, over time, longitudinally, they simply did not have the resources to fight mm-hmm. uh, this war, even to a stalemate as we see today. So, you know, that the open questions about what nations and what configurations of nations can help to um, stop aggressor nations in the mm-hmm. world system is a really interesting and open one. And one, one thing that's fascinating about that set of questions today is that we've got in the U.S. a kind of far left that is very skeptical of those institutions and those kinds of commitments, even though it's it, very ethical in its orientation towards how peoples and groups should be treated, but it's very laissez-faire. So going back to that point I made earlier, if you think about the early 19th century, American policymakers and citizens were really laissez-faire about not meddling in other people's and groups' business. That was Mm -hmm. a standard operating principle for the U.S. because it was a weak power fundamentally. But ideologically, as a commitment, the U.S. was more the city on the hill than the crusader state. 20th century, more a crusader state kind of model. Where are we now? Where are we in the 2020s? That's a very good question, right? So what are we? I mean, it, it, I guess this is we're about to go into the spring campaign yeah. that, you, that the Ukrainians will launch. We, we know it's coming. They've built out, built up a massive amount of material to do this. Mm-hmm. I think their hope is to push the Russians hard enough that whatever bargaining table is set up, they, they have a, a fairly good position. They have some leverage. Where will the United States sit You know, in, in that situation? I mean, there's no way that the United States is going to sustain support for this conflict for more than another year, I would imagine, at, at this level, for sure. Mm-hmm. And it's going to affect the election of 2024 yeah. in, in fundamental ways. So, um, it, it, you know, thinking that the United States is wants to support free peoples, they want to support the idea of democracy, want to push back against autocracy, want to push back against invasions like this, uh, that would happen anywhere, mm-hmm. including maybe Taiwan or something like that. Um, but all, all those principles are wrapped up in the American ability to, to place material in the hands of somebody else and hope that they score the kind of victory that, that affirms those principles, which I'm not sure how likely that actually is. Where we have yeah. the Pope who is like, this war is awful. It's going to continue mm-hmm. to be awful. It needs to end. I mean, it's, it's never going to get better. <laughs> you know, that's right. his point. You know, people will continue to die and Russia can continue this on for as long as it wants to, really. I mean, it can continue to bomb cities for however it has you know, supplies to do so. Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple elements of what you just said. So one is the U.S. doesn't need to only supply material, right? There, the U.S. is training mm-hmm. uh, using its sort of um, different kinds of capital. Uh, the fact that the U.S. has such a, a capable military um, yeah. that can assist. 
yeah. but you know, there's a leadership role, there's a rhetorical role, right? Right. Um, there's the, you know, what I was trying to chart there was thinking about some of those other American leaders um, that Biden fancies himself like, and here FDR would be the primary example. Okay. Kind of four freedoms model for how he thinks yeah. the U.S. should be operating the world, yeah. advancing those principles, you know, freedom, um, freedom of expression, you know, freedom from want, freedom from right. fear. Right. Um, a, a set of freedoms that uh, kind of the U.S. can stand for at home and abroad. And that's the other piece of the question here. Right. The U.S., you know, domestic politics, some of the, you know, the, the FBI recently said, the CIA recently said, you know, uh, some of the worst threats to American democracy are at home. Right. Um, right. You know, the, the, the U.S.'s politics itself, even on questions like Ukraine, are, are riven. Um, even if you look at public opinion polling, the remarkably few people like Russia, uh, many support Ukraine. But if you think about the uh, hyper politicized environment we're in now, um, you know, you, one of the reasons you find a hard time thinking the U.S. can sustain its commitment is, I think, because right, because of the politicking of things like Ukraine, saying, hey, the, creating the false equivalency in this domestic yep. foreign context of if you're giving another 50 billion to Ukraine in terms of, you know, a war aid materially, this sort of thing, why are you not doing a 50 billion tax cut or 50 billion for school education or whatever, scholarships, right? yeah, yeah. whatever, right, yeah, right. vouchers, depending on, like, you know, which. And, and, and you just, you just, you just characterize the right and the left, basically, yep. who are, who are questioning commitments in Ukraine. That's exactly it. We that should be exactly it. Yeah. yeah and, either, and, either giving people money back or supporting. And not buying into that broader ideological framework, I think. Right, you know, so right. it, it's, in that sense, it's a little like 1898 as well. Seeing what's going forward, then the questions are about what should the U.S.'s role be? How much should the U.S. be committed to that? Is the U.S. actually doing the things at home that it's espousing abroad? Uh, you know, the, that parallel is, is a is a poor one at best, but there are some illuminating components there. Some of the strands are, are similar. You know, and, the, and the, I think, too, you know, the U.S. needs to, we all need to fess up to the fact that, look, Ukraine is not a great democracy. If you look at the kind of indicators that, that political scientists right. use, it's a poor democracy. It's a fairly corrupt country. It's it's not spectacular on, on democratic grounds. But the U.S. is declining by those same indicators, too. You know, so, uh, yeah. you know, uh, men in glass, you know, people in glass houses shouldn't cast right. stones kind of situation here, right? Uh, but but more to the point, you know, so supporting an imperfect democracy against uh, terrible aggression seems reasonable if you don't build up that democracy to something that it isn't. Um, right. And, you know, I think there's a lot of false expectations about how the rhetoric operates related to the U.S.'s role here, at, you know, that are um, really important in your deceptively simple question, what does the U.S. get out of it? I think longer term, things the U.S. can get out of a successful conclusion to this, and who knows what that looks like, um, not Russian occupation of all of Ukraine, let's start with that, yeah. um, is, you know, a, a enhanced position on the world stage that was um, much lost in the Trump years. The U.S. is not so much a leader, but a partner. That would be a real move forward, uh, recognizing the U.S. is not the hegemonic power it was, say, in the 90s in the unipolar moment, but is capable of acting in concert with lots of other countries um, to help people, <laughs> right, for the good. You, there are no occupation forces in this conflict. There's just material aid, training aid, rhetorical, yeah. you know, support, yeah. uh, all that kind of thing. Uh, you know, another element here would be, you know, not having the potential economic cataclysm um, that was on the table. You know, remember in February 2022, late pandemic, um, you know, the war in Ukraine really tanked markets. You know, people were very worried, right? You're getting the wheat supplies out. You know, right. it, it, it's easy to forget some of that, you know, a, a year plus later. Um, so, you know, helping resume a kind of reasonable international system that also penalizes Russia. This was your other question. You know, how do you keep bad actors in the international system from doing more and worse? Well, you know, uh, short of war again, which nobody wants, you have to figure out those systems. Obviously, there's a lot of loopholes in the sanctions that, that Russia is getting, um, yep. has figured out and lots of, as always, plenty yeah. of nations are, are, are supporting, but it is very clearly taking a toll on Russia. All the reporting suggests that everybody I know in the security studies world suggests that, you know, yep. uh, the, the Russian elites have never been more shaken in the Putin years than they are today. And that so, they cannot rely on Putin to take care of them. Yes. Necessarily. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. And, and that there is no immediate escape hatch. Right. This is a this yeah. is a 
path-determined moment for Russia now, having gone this far. And, and that is makes them fearful because of the sanctions, the way the international community has come together. You know, I think another thing that could be a positive outcome here, and I don't want to be um, too Pollyanna-ish or uh, even especially positive, but if you look at this configuration that was a borning between China and Russia just a few yeah. years ago, a kind of so-called special relationship that they were developing, this is really created a fissure there. Absolutely. Um, And the question of if China China will become a better actor in the world stage, I'm not going to say, you know, um, anything more transcendent than that, you know, were China to be pushing, let's say, uh, let's let's go to the neoliberal kind of order questions, right? Rules-based order. Were China to be more of a signatory, do a little bit better on human rights at home, do a little bit better on human rights abroad, protect small sovereign countries for their own reasons, perhaps economic, Um, perhaps for self-aggrandizement, um, that would be a useful outcome. Yeah. Chris Nichols, thanks. This is great. I think that we're going to have <laughs> other opportunities maybe to talk about stuff in, in the future. But uh, I really appreciate this. This is one of the best summaries and, and discussions of, uh, of the Spanish-American War that I've ever been part of. So thanks, man. Oh, thanks so much. Great chatting with you.